Father, we thank you that we get to open your word now as those who can sing, that we have believed your word. God, I pray that you would increase our faith. I pray that you would increase our confidence and joy that you are the God who saves. Help us to understand uh, more your will now so that we could please you in the way that we seek to carry it out on the earth. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And we'll pick up today in verse 12. Now this passage, Acts 1... 12 through 26 is sandwiched between two of the most important events in the history of the world. Two of the most important events in God's plan for salvation. Just before this passage, the Lord Jesus goes up from the earth to heaven. And just after this passage, the Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit down to earth from heaven. There was not much time in between these two great events. The Spirit descended just 12 days after Jesus ascended. Excuse me, 10 days. But the number 12 will be important in just a little bit. Uh, So it's not very long. It it would be easy to overlook such a small window of time, overshadowed uh, by such colossal, world-changing events on either side, the Ascension and Pentecost. But the Bible does not silently skip over this time frame, something very important needs to happen in these 10 days. There's some critical kingdom business that Jesus needs to accomplish before he sends his spirit upon his people. Today's passage in Acts 1 will show us what that necessary prep work for Pentecost was that's still left undone when Christ ascends to heaven. Now, in the first part of this passage, we're given just a general report of what the disciples were doing during this short transitional period. And and throughout this passage, there continues to be a special focus on the apostles of Christ, or uh, at least the apostles of Christ who are still left at this time. So follow along in your Bible as I read verses 12 and 13, and this begins the first main point of our scripture The eleven left in place. Verse 12 now. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, who is called in other gospels, Judas, not Iscariot. These 11 men saw Jesus ascend to heaven from the Mount of Olives. Now, that was not very far from Jerusalem, only, verse 12 says, a Sabbath day's journey away. And that was only about three quarters of a mile, about the maximum distance that the Jewish religious leaders of the day said you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath and and still effectively set the day apart as a special day of rest, like God commanded. After these disciples saw Jesus taken to heaven in a cloud, 
they make the short journey back to Jerusalem because Jesus had told them to do that. Their mission was supposed to begin in Jerusalem. Christ said in verse 8, just before he ascended, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And a little earlier, up in verse 4, Jesus gave clear instruction along these lines. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. So in obedience, the apostles leave Mount Olivet and go back to Jerusalem to wait. Now in the Bible, waiting for God is never a passive thing. It's characterized by activity, namely prayer. And that's what we find the 11 doing in the next verse. But they're not doing it alone. Look at verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The next verse will tell us there's about 120 people here huddled in this upper room in Jerusalem. And this small, united, prayerful, powerless group is the mustard seed of the kingdom of God. Jesus had taught in Luke 13, 19 that the kingdom of God would be like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So out from this little ragtag assembly, the gospel would spread to the ends of the earth. The, the sparks that come from these small prayer meetings would set the world on fire. God's Word teaches us what this story illustrates. Don't despise the day of small things. Jesus demonstrated the power of the Spirit by choosing this unimpressive group as the mustard seed beginning of His kingdom community on earth. Consider who is in this room. Of course, there are the 11 remaining apostles. Most of them had been fishermen, and these are not like upper middle class people who fish for a hobby in their free time. These are uh, rough and uneducated men. One has been a tax collector, so he was previously a cheat and a scoundrel. One of them, verse 13 pointed out, was a zealot, meaning he was part of a Jewish political movement that called for violent revolution to break away from Roman rule. So he had been an extremist or what some might call today a domestic terrorist. All of the 11 apostles left in place are from Galilee, as the angel in verse 11 called them, men of Galilee. So they all have country accents, being from uh, rural areas. And in the room also, Luke is eager to point out next, there are many women. And I think Luke especially wants us to think 
that these are the women who accompanied Jesus and the other disciples during his earthly ministry. They're still around after he ascended to heaven. They're still faithfully devoted to Jesus. They're still important parts of his ongoing ministry. In Luke 8, the beginning of it, we read that as Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So this group of women who were many had followed Jesus along with the 12 apostles from Galilee, and they also accompanied him up to Jerusalem, and they also witnessed his crucifixion and his resurrection. And after that, they also stayed in Jerusalem with the twelve, waiting for the promise of the Father and joining the disciples in fervent prayer. Now, lastly, in verse 14, we see that Jesus' earthly family has become part of uh, his early church also. Mary, his mother, is here, and also his brothers are part of the upper room prayer group. Now, some religious groups, uh, like the Roman Catholic Church, teach Mary did not bear any other children after Christ. But that isn't the case. After she gave birth to Jesus, while she was still a virgin, when she was engaged to Joseph, after that, she married Joseph and had several other children with him. And that's who these brothers of Jesus are in verse 14. Now, the Roman Catholic Church also teaches that Christians should venerate Mary as the queen of heaven and even as a co-redeemer and co-mediator with Christ. Well, these are grave errors, and we see nothing like that in the Bible. Look at Mary here in Acts 1. She is not in any way exalted in the midst of the disciples. She's just listed alongside the other women, listed after them even in the roster of verse 14. She's, she's another faithful part of the prayer meeting with the other disciples of Jesus. She's following the leadership of the 11 apostles just like the other disciples. And this is the last time that she's mentioned in the Bible. After this verse, she fades into the background and is never mentioned again as we read on about how Christ begins to build his church and the gospel goes out to all nations. Now, it's also neat to find Jesus' little brothers here in the upper room. Mark 6, 3 names them as James, Joseph, Judas, or Jude, and Simon. And, and it's neat to see them here because previously they had been major skeptics of Jesus. The Gospel of John in chapter 7, verse 5 says, Not even his brothers believed in him. But they do now. They are here worshiping their older brother as their Lord and waiting for his spirit in his service with the other Disciples And these men, like the apostles, did not seem like they were the kind of men who could turn the world upside down. Uh, they weren't princes or powerful speakers. They were carpenters. They were construction workers. Construction workers from Nazareth, a, a place of no repute. 
So if you wanted to assemble a core group for a new church that could really get some important kingdom work done, we probably would not have very high hopes that a group like this one, assembled in the upper room, could be much of a success. How quickly we forget that the power of the Spirit is what makes all the difference. And how quickly we forget that our Lord loves to choose what is low and despised in the world, not what is noble, powerful, and wise, according to worldly standards. So Jesus is certainly not in heaven looking down upon these common folk in the upper room and thinking, we could really get this movement going if we had some more movers and shakers in the room. The people in this prayer meeting are precisely the people Jesus chose and wanted to be there. When the 120 gather in Jerusalem, everything is coming into place exactly according to his plan. They don't look like much. But then again, perhaps if we take another look with spiritual eyes, we would see that they very much seem like the kind of group God might use in remarkable ways. Verse 14 said, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. With one mind, all of them were continually devoted to prayer together. Has there ever been a group of believers that can be described like that? whom God has not greatly honored and used mightily for his glory? I think probably not. Could our little church be described like this? Do you want it to be true of us? Or could you take it or leave it? Because it certainly would cost something to be continually devoted to prayer of one accord. A group of believers who walk in the power of the Spirit for witness, like we will see later in the book, will first be a group who is characterized by persevering, united prayer. And church history bears that out as much as the book of Acts does. So perhaps then on second thought, we might look at this group and think, they are ready. They are ready to be Christ's witnesses. Look at what they're doing. Go ahead and send the Spirit, Lord. Send them out. But actually, they're not ready yet. When we read these verses, we should think something is missing here. Specifically, when we read the list of apostles in verse 13, that's supposed to make us think of previous lists of apostles found in the Gospels and conclude Someone is missing from this updated list of apostles. We're only able to count to 11 here. And that may not seem like such a big deal to us, but it's actually a big problem in the eyes of Jesus. As he looks on from heaven, he wants to make sure that that number does not stay at 11 before he pours out his spirit on his people. About 25 times in the New Testament, the apostles are referred to simply as the 12. Their number is part of their identity. 
having 12 apostles was related to their purpose in God's plan. God was going to establish His uh, new covenant community, His people, His kingdom around a core of 12 men, just like He had done with the 12 patriarchs of Israel before them. So when we find only 11 names, we're one short. There's a vacancy. And we know we're on the right track to sense there's something incomplete about the current band of apostles because that's what the rest of this chapter is all about. Beginning in verse 15, the Lord stirs this room full of disciples to take action on that matter. And at this point, the focus of the story transitions from the 11 left in place and turns now our attention to the one who lost his place. And that's the second major section of the passage, the one who lost his place. Look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, most of you knew already that Judas Iscariot was the missing name from the list of apostles in verse 13. He, he had been one of Christ's chosen closest 12. Jesus appointed only 12 men whom he named apostles. The gospel says he did that so they might be with him, so that he might, so that he might send them out to preach and Jesus had brought Judas near many times with the other apostles to explain to him the mysteries of the kingdom, which uh, were truths were withheld from the crowds. Uh, Judas was one of the twelve whom Jesus once gave authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Judas had followed Jesus during his whole ministry. And all along, Judas sure didn't seem like a bad apple. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, it's not like all the apostles started looking immediately at Judas. Mm-hmm, Judas. They didn't know who to suspect. And they looked around and asked, Lord, is it I? And perhaps Judas was especially trusted among them because he was the treasurer of the group. The gospel says he was given charge over the money bag. Judas was there with the other 11 when Jesus told the apostles, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 28. Well, now there's not enough apostles left to sit on those 12 promise. Thrones. The twelve are not the twelve anymore. And the apostle Peter brings up this basic uh, arithmetic problem in verse 17. When he says, For he, Judas, was numbered or counted among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. This ministry is the apostleship. As verse 25 puts it, the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside. 
Now notice in verse 17 that the ministry of the apostles is spoken of as a singular ministry. It was their collective ministry in which Judas had a share. They had a ministry to fulfill together as the 12 apostles. And Judas was a part of that number. Well, what was their shared ministry? Jesus appointed the apostles to be together the foundation for the church that he was about to build. The end of Ephesians 2 describes the church as a structure that's joined together in Christ. It's made a holy temple in Christ. And Christians are built together in Christ and are made into a dwelling place for God the Spirit. And Ephesians says this household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Then at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, there's a vision of uh, the kingdom of Christ being established on the earth in full, and then a new Jerusalem descends down from heaven. It's the final dwelling place of God with his people. And we're told that this holy city represents the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. And the wall of this city has 12 foundations. And on those foundations are written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. When Jesus initially made the promise in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, he then compared the apostle Peter to a rock on which he would build his church. So the apostles were supposed to be the foundation stones for the building of the church. How so? The apostles were chosen by Jesus to serve as his authorized spokesman, his delegates after he ascended to take his throne in heaven. He was going to cause them to speak by the inspiration of the Spirit, just like the Old Testament prophets had. And he would send them out with these Spirit-inspired words to bear witness for him concerning what he had done to save sinners in his life and in his substitutionary death and in his resurrection. And then when sinners would hear their testimony, their authoritative testimony about what Jesus did on the cross and in rising again, if they responded to it in faith, they would be saved from their sins and saved from the eternal judgment of God they deserve for their sins. And still, this is how it works today, how someone is added to Christ's church and, and inherits Christ's kingdom and receives from Christ salvation when someone believes the good news that he sent out through them. And then if someone does that, they become like a living stone that's built on top of the apostles having believed upon their testimony. And that's how Jesus was going to build his church on top of the foundation of the apostles. And so we see now the problem Jesus must address before Pentecost. The foundation for the church that he was about to build is incomplete. You can't begin to raise a building. You can't begin to build a temple unless you have a complete foundation. If Jesus is going to 
begin building his church, he needs to shore up the foundation first. Now, that problem might raise some concerning questions initially. So here we are, supposedly on the brink in the book of Acts of the explosive initial growth of the church, and the church's foundation isn't even settled yet? No, it's usually not a very good sign if someone finds problems with the foundation that need to be fixed even before the building starts to go up. It makes us worried that whoever laid that foundation might not do such a good job building the structure. So how confident should we really be in the way Christ will establish His kingdom and build His church if one of His 12 foundation stones ends up like this? I mean, just look at what happened to Judas. Luke writes about it in verse 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels, or his insides, gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. So how are we supposed to feel secure in Christ if, if one of his foundational apostles ended up overcome by Satan and, and destroyed spiritually and physically like this? Now, should we be worried about how successful Jesus might be in building his church if he can't lay down a stable foundation? Should we be worried about how effective Jesus might be in ruling his kingdom if, if he can't keep together all of his most trusted and privileged subjects? This passage in Acts 1 is in the Bible to help put fears like that to rest. Here we see that even when Jesus needs to take action to repair a faulty foundation, still everything is going perfectly according to his plan. Everything. Everything. Even when it seems to us like something went terribly wrong, in actuality, everything is falling in place perfectly in accordance with his good, wise, sovereign will. How can I say that? Well, look again at verse 16. When Peter began all this talk about Judas, and he establishes, before saying anything else, that the defection of Judas happened entirely in keeping with God's plan. Verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, this is not to say that the Holy Spirit caused this defection in Judas. God is never the author or approver of sin. This arose from the wickedness that was in Judas's heart, but, but God incorporated this evil into his sovereign plan for good and his glory and how he would build his church. He, he spoke it beforehand that this would happen. 
the foundation repair then that, that Jesus needs to do before he sends the Spirit, it's not the result of any error or oversight or calamity that he just couldn't prevent. No, God said ahead of time this was a necessary part of the plan. So when Judas turns away from his share in the ministry of apostleship, it's not the unraveling of the Lord's plan. It is the fulfillment of God's plan. It's the fulfillment of Scripture. It's all falling into place. That had been the case all along, and so we can be confident it will be the case ever since. It will be the case for the rest of time and eternity to no matter what happens to you and around you, you can live confident that the Lord Jesus has never once had any of his good plans go sideways. All of his plans are coming to fruition straight down the middle in all the ways he is building his church and in all the ways he is ruling over his kingdom. So if it looks to you like the church of Jesus is getting off on the wrong foot because one of his apostles has run off to side with his arch enemies, well, you're wrong to draw that conclusion. That's the wrong read on the situation, and we get the right read on the situation by reading the Scriptures. Judas forfeits his share as an apostle, as the fulfillment of Scripture. And the Scriptures Peter has in mind that foretold Judas' betrayal are quoted by him in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. And, another quotation, let another take his office. Well, that first quote is from Psalm 69, 25. The second is from Psalm 109, 8. Both are Psalms of David, just as Peter indicated in his introduction in verse 16. And in both of these Psalms, David is reflecting on the suffering and opposition that he faced as God's anointed righteous king. But David was a prophet, and, and he also knew that the suffering and betrayal that he experienced would be replayed, as it were, in an even greater way in the life of the greater anointed king that was coming after him, Jesus. So consider again the first psalm Peter quoted in verse 20. May his camp or his homestead or property, may it become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And the previous verses, verses 18 and 19, show us how Judas fulfilled this scripture. Uh, he bought a field and then his property became desolate. He did not start living in it as a homestead. It, be, it became a field of blood. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that this field that was bought with Judas's money later became a cemetery. And so the Scripture was fulfilled indeed, let there be none to dwell in his camp. Now the second psalm doesn't speak of Judas's downfall uh, per se, but rather of his replacement. Let another take his office. And that's what happens next in Acts 1. In the final verses of the chapter, another takes Judas' office. So verse 20 is, is a hinge verse 
The first psalm quoted in verse 20 shows that everything that's happened before concerning Jesus, Judas is in accordance with the Scripture in, in God's foreordained will. And then the second psalm quoted in the verse shows that all that is about to happen concerning Judas when he's replaced is also in accordance with the Scriptures in God's foreordained will. So the final section of the passage begins in verse 21. We've seen the 11 left in place and the one who lost his place. And finally, we see the one who took his place. Look at verse 21. So Peter continues. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now notice the word must there at the end. This is the same language of necessity that was used up in verse 16. The, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And now one of these men must become a witness, replacing Judas. It's the same Greek word both places and could be translated both times as it is necessary. It was necessary for the scriptures to be fulfilled about his downfall. Now, now it's necessary for one to take his place as an authoritative witness for Christ. This is all happening in accordance with divine necessity. Okay? Are you getting the main thrust of this passage? We're supposed to see that the plans and purposes of Jesus are not faltering, even when it seems like they might be. And we need to see it at the beginning of Acts so we'll have confidence in him going forward knowing that his plans and purposes will never falter. We can trust his promises all the way to glory. It's true for the early church. It's true for our little church family. It's true regarding each one of our lives. When we see one apostle lose his place and another take his place, this passage means to tell us that everything is falling into place perfectly according to his sovereign designs. And so Peter rallies the troops to replace Judas in fulfillment of the scripture. And when he does, he lays out the baseline qualifications for being an apostle of Jesus. You had to be an eyewitness of his resurrection. Now, furthermore, to be qualified to be one of the most foundational 12 apostles... These verses said you had to be an eyewitness of Christ's whole earthly ministry from the beginning of it until the end of it. So even the Apostle Paul, who came later, couldn't be one of the twelve. The authoritative testimony that, that the apostles would spread about Jesus under the inspiration of the Spirit, Jesus wanted it to be a very personal and firsthand testimony about him. And the upper room fellowship is able to find at least two men who fit the bill. You see that in verse 23. They put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Both of these men had accompanied the eleven apostles during all the time that Jesus went in and out among them. Beginning from the baptism of John 
until the day Christ ascended to heaven, either of them could have become with the others a witness to Christ's resurrection. Okay, so think with me here. If both fit that qualification, that means that being an eyewitness follower of Jesus wasn't enough all by itself to be counted as an apostle. Because there are at least two who could serve according to those credentials only. What else is necessary then? Well, if you remember the very beginning of this book, uh, it doesn't only describe the apostles as the ones, in verse 3, to whom Jesus presented himself alive. They were also called, in verse 2, the apostles whom Jesus had chosen to become an apostle, an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection, had to be directly chosen by the Lord Jesus himself for the task and, and personally appointed by Jesus to the office. Christ's apostles would not just be credible witnesses who could speak with, about him with firsthand knowledge. Jesus planned for them to be authoritative witnesses who could speak about him with words that he would give them by the inspiration of the Spirit. They needed to be chosen and commissioned by him. And this final qualification is what the disciples inquire about next in the upper room to complete uh, the search for the 12th apostle. Look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Now, during his earthly ministry, uh, Luke 6 says he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. And now we see even though Jesus is ascended and in heaven, he is not any less involved in the building of his church. He is still going to hand-select and choose this new apostle also. So the upper room crew could, could sift through those who met the first basic qualification, but they couldn't appoint anyone to this office. Only the Lord Jesus could do that. Now certainly the main reason... For that is because this is Jesus' church. It's his kingdom. It's his assembly. He said he would build it. So he gets to choose how the church is ordered and, and who's part of the foundation for it. But another reason why the disciples knew Jesus must make this choice is because Jesus is, like they addressed him in verse 24, the one who knows the hearts of all. As they considered replacing Judas, the disciples remembered this vividly, that, that they certainly had not known the heart of Judas. They didn't know he would be a betrayer and lose his place among them. Jesus knew it from the beginning. In John 6, 64, Jesus said to his disciples, There are some of you who do not believe. And then the verse explains why Jesus said this. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When you seek to serve Jesus, when you take actions to follow Jesus, when you try to serve the church of Jesus and build up his church, are you careful to do it from the heart? Because that is where the Lord is looking. The final part of verse 25 sounds again a note about God's sovereign purposes being fulfilled. It says, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So, so even when another man takes his former place in the apostleship, Judas still ends up in his own proper, rightful place. Verse 25 does not say, Judas turned aside from his own place. It says he turned aside to go to his own place. He does not end up where he should not be, according to what was happening in his heart. He ends up where he should, the field of blood, and what came after that for him. So when the Lord needs to replace one of his original apostles, he is not scrapping his original plan. This is the original plan coming to fruition. And it happens in verse 26. The, the Lord makes known his choice through a lot, which, which was a common way in the Old Testament that they sought the will of the Lord, which is not modeled again in the New Testament after the Spirit comes. But this is what they do, and, and the Lord uses it. Look at verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So Matthias is added to the 11 left in place. And the full number of the apostles is restored. The 12 are the 12. Again, all the foundation stones are now fixed in place, occupying their office. Now everything is ready for Christ to send the Spirit and to begin to add people to his church and kingdom Whenever they respond in faith to the gospel that Christ gave his apostles to preach. Have you responded in faith to the gospel that he has sent forth through his apostles? That Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And if you will turn from your sins and put your faith in him, you will be forgiven and have eternal life and have a share in his kingdom. Why would you not do that? One final application. When you get it clear what an apostle is, like Matthias became, okay, remember it's a spirit-inspired eyewitness of Jesus who was personally chosen and commissioned by Jesus to be his authoritative spokesman. Okay, getting that definition of an apostle clear in your mind 
has more present-day practical implications than you may realize. Okay, here's why. No one can meet these qualifications anymore today. There aren't still eyewitnesses of Jesus around. And that's okay. The time of the apostles has passed. The gift of apostleship has ceased in accordance with Christ's perfect plan for His church. The foundation of the church has already been laid, and we can build on top of that without feeling the need to add to it. The Spirit-inspired words of the apostles that we have in the Bible are sufficient. It's a finished foundation that we have for our faith, and it is enough. It's, it's enough to make us wise for salvation in Christ. It's enough for us to know how to live the life that God wants all of us to live all the way. Having this understanding of apostleship helps us then not to be led astray by doctrines that are not truly from Christ. And here's an example. Other religious groups like, again, the Roman Catholic Church or, or the Mormon Church, they add to Scripture additional teachings and instructions that they say are equal in authority to the Scripture. And they say that this is legitimate because... They believe that the highest leaders in their organizations are apostles, just like Matthias was. So if you misunderstand what an apostle was and what qualifications one must have and, and what the purpose of the office was, then you can be misled into thinking that the office of apostle continues still today, which leaves you vulnerable to being drawn away from Scripture because you're open to embracing doctrines that are not taught in it. Well, I hope that makes sense. If it didn't, take away at least this. Our faith has been delivered once for all for the saints. In the Bible, uh, the foundation of Christ's church is not still being built. What Jesus has given us is enough for us to fulfill the mission that he wants us to fulfill. So go back to the Bible often, devote yourself to the teaching of the apostles, and let's devote ourselves to prayer together, asking God for the power of the Spirit to enliven our efforts, to dig in the Word ourselves, to share the Word with others and with each other too. This is the way Jesus has shown us. Let's walk in it. God, help us, please, to carry out your design for us now. Thank you for how you used the apostles to speak to us your words. These are the words of eternal life that Jesus spoke for us through the apostles. Thank you for giving them to us. Thank you for helping us to believe them and to stake our lives and our eternities on them. We know that you will come through, that you'll keep all your promises, that none of your plans fail or falter or ever go off kilter, even a little bit. Fill us with an increased measure of this confidence in your trustworthiness and dependability and sovereignty. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.